0: Hail and well met everyone. Welcome to Geek Thyself, a podcast by a nerd for other nerds that love geeking out over random facts and esoteric trivia. My name is Heather and I'll be your host as we journey into the wondrous land of information. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Geek Thyself. So originally I was going to talk about a subject that was a little more broad, and I was going to talk about the history of handwriting in general. However, as I was doing my research, I discovered that there's actually a ton of information known about cuneiform. For anyone who's not familiar with cuneiform, it is an ancient style of writing that has been known of for thousands of years. It's been around for about 5,000 years. And it is the, anyone who's ever looked at a history book and seen those little clay tablets that look like they almost have a bunch of little chicken scratch divots and lines and things in it, that's cuneiform. And it's an ancient form of writing. It's the earliest known form of writing, and there's so much information about it that it became its own episode today. So, Instead of history of handwriting, I'm going to be focusing for this week at least on the history of cuneiform. As I mentioned, we know that it's been around for roughly 5,000 years, so it's been around since about 3000 BC or so. We don't know specifically what person or anything like that invented it, obviously, but we do know that it originated in what is now known as southern Iraq. We also know that it started off with the Sumerians as a sort of early writing, so they call it proto-writing, so things like cave paintings, stick tallies, things like that that exist. They are forms of communication, but they're referred to as proto-writing because it's not really a written language so much as symbols that are being used to represent things. Some of you may be wondering what about hieroglyphics. Hieroglyphic. I can't talk. Hieroglyphics are considered a true form of writing because it wasn't just the picture images that we see. It was also some of their little symbols. And because it wasn't just, I'm going to throw paint on a wall in the shape of a cat and that represents a cat. They had an actual symbol that was consistently used to represent cat. So that is what one of the things that makes hieroglyphics different from just the cave paintings and things like that. It's why hieroglyphics is an actual form of writing and not proto-writing. The proto-writing that led to cuneiform is something that the Sumerians did where they, in order to keep track of transactions, they would use different types of stones to indicate different receipts, basically. So for example, they would say that this particular stone represents a gallon of milk or something like that. And then say that another person in the village was buying milk, trading them goods or something like that from another person. So if there was a transaction, one of the people would use the stones to represent the milk they were buying and they would trade the stones back and forth. And the person who made the purchase would be given stones as like a receipt. So instead of using paper receipts like what you and I have nowadays, what they would do is they would put a certain type of stone or a certain number of stones into a container. And basically the stones were tokens to represent some sort of resource, sort of like how we use coins and paper money to represent The gold standard or the, you know, I don't understand exactly how that all works, but basically, same idea. We have these little pieces of metal and these little pieces of paper that represent coinage. They represent money. They don't actually physically have that much value of any kind on their own, but in our society, they represent something that's very valuable. And the Sumerians did the same thing, but they were doing it with things like stones and rocks that they were finding and using as representations This eventually led to them creating clay envelopes instead of just putting stones into a container. And on those clay envelopes, they were marking off tallies and things like that to indicate the basically the same information. And slowly over time, those tallies and the clay envelope developed into the clay tablets and cuneiform that we know now, or well, I should say that we now find in historical sites. There are actually very few people who can still read cuneiform. It fell completely out of practice. No one known knew how to read it at all. And then currently, you know, between archaeologists and historians and things like that, there are a few people who know how to translate it and can actually read it. But there's not many, especially compared to the number of tablets we have left over. One of the nice things about cuneiform is that because of how they wrote it down, we have a lot of these little tablets left behind that we can use for information about ancient history. The downside is that unfortunately the Sumerians primarily developed cuneiform to use to keep track of transactions and administrative purposes. So a lot of the writing isn't artistic, it's not a lot of stories necessarily, a lot of it is more transactions of I bought six sheep and three gallons of milk and gave you three bags of leather and my daughter's hand in marriage or, you know, something ridiculous, whatever it is, it wouldn't have been ridiculous to them, but whatever they may have made a transaction for, that's what's on those tablets. So they didn't use it to write out stories and love letters so much. It was more just administrative purposes. We also know that in many ways, their decision to use clay tablets is genius, because the clay tablets have lasted longer than pretty much any other writing materials that ancient peoples used. I mean, obviously some clay pottery and things like that or inscriptions into stone are still around. But in terms of everyday usage, those clay tablets have lasted far longer than anything else. They've lasted longer than the Egyptian papyrus or vellum or or parchment, or even paper that you and I use nowadays. All of it cannot stand up to how long those clay tablets have lasted because, again, a lot of those are 5,000 years old to varying degrees because obviously there are some newer ones we've found also. But part of the reason that they've also lasted is because anytime there's fires or anything like that, and especially in ancient times, obviously they didn't have sprinkler systems and things like that. So Any fires could potentially burn down entire libraries and entire stores of documents, but the clay tablets just hardened. So, all that happened is that they made the clay, the fire made the clay tablets even harder to destroy because it made the clay itself harder and therefore they've lasted longer. The only other form of documentation like that that we really have from ancient times that's almost as well, it's not quite as numerous, but we still have quite a bit of it is the Egyptian papyrus scrolls. And the reason we have so many of those is because the Egyptians had a burial practice of putting the papyrus scrolls into a container, and that container was then buried. So these containers protected the papyrus scrolls from exposure to the elements, which in turn protected the scrolls from degrading and deteriorating over time. The clay just in and of itself held up. The papyrus had a little boost because of how the Egyptians stored it, and so we have more of that information than some others as well. Cuneiform is acknowledged as the earliest known form of writing, and we know that the Greeks also recognized it as a form of language. As far as we know, they're actually the ones that named it cuneiform specifically. Um, The word roughly translates to mean uh, wedge-shaped which is what a lot of those little scratches look like. The stylus that was used to create the cuneiform writing is similar to a stylus that you and I would use on our phones now, is sort of thin and round and pen-like. But at the end that's used for writing, it was actually a wedge-shaped tip. And that wedge-shaped tip could be turned in different directions and used to push into the wet clay at different depths. And those different indentations, how deep they were, where they were, what angle they were, all of those little indicators are what created the language. So it was extremely, extremely complex because how deep a symbol was indicated a lot about what the word actually meant, what it translated to. And similarly, you could have two symbols next to each other that look almost identical, but how deep Or the slight angling of the indentation from one to the other is what would tell you whether it meant word A or word B. And so you really, really had to study a lot. And the scribes back then would have studied for years in order to be able to do even basic administrative writing. Because of its complexity and also because of how it was the first one around, cuneiform did spread to a lot of other areas and was used by a lot of ancient peoples. It was used in as many as 15 other languages that developed from it. So they may have tweaked a few things, but the Sumerian and cuneiform became part of those languages. And of course, eventually over time was no longer used, but for a long time it was for thousands of years. And it was unfortunate actually, but for about 2000 years, as far as we know, no one could read cuneiform. It was eventually figured out by a British officer named Sir Henry Rawlinson in 1837. He went to in what is now Iran, but at the time was Western Persia. And there's a set of cliffs there, really high, steep cliffs called Behistun or Behistun. I'm not entirely sure how you say it. B-E-H-I-S-T-U-N. It looks like Behistun. But either way, there was a cliffside there that had a lot of cuneiform marks written into it. The cuneiform had been used sort of like the Rosetta Stone that I think a lot of people are familiar with, where there were three different sets of languages. And that's how we've been able to translate a lot of ancient writing. Well, those Behistun cliffs, what they did, whoever created them, is that they actually wrote an epic about King Darius, the great of Persia. He was the king during the 5th century BC Persian Empire. And there was basically this big story about his life and how great he was. And, and this story was inscribed into the cliffside in three different languages. It was put up there in Old Persian, Elamite, and Babylonian. So eventually historians were able to translate and figure out the old Persian and that let them translate the other two since it was exactly the same each time. And therefore they were able to later translate documents that had been found that were in Elamite or in Babylonian and get more information for us about ancient times. But Sir Henry Rawlinson took a copy of the inscription from the cliffside of the cuneiform writing. And he was the one who was able to take it home and actually break it down and figure out what the cuneiform translated to in the first place. So without him, we wouldn't even be able to read. Well, someone may have eventually figured it out, but he's the one who originally decrypted and figured out what the cuneiform symbols even meant and how it all worked. And he actually, in order to get the different depths of the inscriptions, because, you know, like I said, each little wedge and mark, how deep it is, could affect what it means. He used thick paper and pressed down into the paper in different depths in order to figure out the exact symbols. And so it must have taken him a really long time. And especially back in 1837, You know, their climbing equipment and everything wasn't as good, so he was probably standing on these precarious cliffs trying to write all this information down and press things into his pad of paper and get the information he needed. But he eventually managed to decode it, and because of that, we can now read cuneiform again. Okay, so it's a little earlier than usual, but we're going to go into our break, and then I will be back with more information on the history of cuneiform. Okay, everyone, so I'm super, super excited to talk this week about the streaming show that I mentioned last week somewhat briefly. It's called Countless Heroes. We're going to be broadcasting it, by we, I mean NerdSmith, is going to be broadcasting it on our Twitch channel. You can find us on Twitch. Our handle is NerdSmith, so you can follow us there and get updates when we go live. Our first show is actually tonight. Because this episode that you're listening to is obviously released on Wednesday morning, but I'm recording it on Tuesday. So today's the 7th, and our first show is tonight, and I'm incredibly excited. It's a D&D campaign with 16 players, one Dungeon Master, and we're going to be playing five nights a week. Well, five days a week. So we're going to be playing Tuesday through Friday from 7 to 11, roughly, uh, Pacific Standard Time, and then on Saturdays you can catch us also on Twitch from 1 to 5 Pacific Standard Time. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's a homebrew world. We've come up with a couple of unique races that I think people will find really interesting, so I definitely recommend checking it out. Obviously I'm a little biased because I'm in it and I have a lot of friends that are in it, but I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And if you like actual play and you like watching D&D on stream, then I definitely recommend checking it checking it out. The other thing I want to talk about is World Anvil. We are using World Anvil to keep track of a lot of the information for the campaign. It's a wonderful tool for dungeon masters and role-playing game players even to keep track of homebrew worlds. It's also really, really useful for authors who are creating stories and want to keep track of the history of their world in a more easy format. So if any of that applies to you and you want to check it out, then go to worldanvil.com. And with that, let's get back to talking about cuneiform. Okay, so with cuneiform being the very first real written language, as you would expect, they did have schools to teach it, and they actually only taught cuneiform in schools. Things like math and whatnot weren't really taught, but they had specific schools just for cuneiform. In fact, the word Sumerian word for school was, and I'm going to possibly butcher this, it looks like eduba, E-D-U-B-B-A. So eduba, eduba, I'm not entirely sure which way it's said, but either way, it translates roughly to tablet house because that was where people learned to write on the little clay tablets. Now, they did teach a lot of people how to write with the cuneiform. However, as is the case in most ancient societies, it was just the privileged of society who learned to write. So it was mostly the boys and possibly a few women of the higher class families that were taught to write the cuneiform. And they would have been taught from the ground up. They had to make their own tablets And these tablets ranged a lot in size. Some of them could be very large. You know, obviously someone carved something into a cliffside, which is huge. But they also had much smaller ones. The book I used for most of this information, um, the woman who wrote it actually went to the Morgan Library and Museum in New York. And the curator of the ancient Near Eastern Seals and Tablets area let her look at some of the tablets up close. His name is Sidney Babcock. And the tablets were absolutely tiny. The author, her name is Anne Truback. Anne Truback, when she went to see them and when he let her hold them, she mentions that they're so tiny that he used an analogy to describe the size of some of the handwriting on these tablets. So Babcock, the curator, used this analogy to describe the size of the writing. Find the second portrait of Lincoln on the penny. You know, the one of his statue inside the Lincoln Memorial on the obverse? That's how small the script can be. So the script on some of these cuneiform tablets, which are so small, is as small as the print on the backside of a penny. That's, that's how tiny it is. And they could read it, and they used it to keep impeccable records. These tablets, even though when we see them on TV, a lot of times they look bigger, or if you look at the articles online and stuff, those pictures have been blown up a lot. The author, Ann Truback, like I mentioned, she, when she went to look at them, uh, mentions how she expected them to be a lot larger, and some of the tablets are the size of about half of her cell phone. So they're like half the size of an iPhone. They're so small that they would fit into the palm of your hand. The fact that these tablets are so small actually does make sense if you know about the way that cuneiform is written. I mentioned earlier that it's made by pressing the stylus, which is wedged at the tip, into different angles and different positions. One of the ways they did this, and one of the ways that they were able to make it a more complex language, is that it was a two-handed language. So you didn't just use the stylus to put the marks in, you would also turn the clay tablet to whatever direction you needed in order to achieve the right depth and the right angle. What this means is that having small clay tablets that could fit into the palm of your hand would make it significantly easier to do the actual writing and manipulation of the tablet and the stylus. It doesn't mean that the script was very tiny, But on the plus side, that means you could have a lot of them in a very small space. We also know that it wasn't a lot of create your own words or create your own stories. A lot of what they were taught was basically just memorization. They were taught the different ways to turn the tablet and stylus to achieve the different symbols, and they were taught how to turn the stylus from not only the angle, but also are you putting the wedge part down? Is the rounded tip going in? Are you using the back end of the stylus to make a little round dot? All of those things changed what the word meant, and they pretty much just had to memorize it. So like I mentioned, it would have taken years and years of study. Especially with how small the script is, I can't imagine it would have been a quick thing to learn. On top of that, they would have more advanced scribes as well. So in addition to having the people who could do the basic mechanical, you know, oh, we sold six apples and 12 sheep today, In addition to the people who could keep track of little administrative things like that, they also had people that were more advanced in their skills and could do more complex writing. They had a couple different levels of it. Sort of the mid-level, so the more advanced scribes, could do legal documentation and temple administrative documents. So those were considered more important. So legal documents, such as I'm selling you this property or... You and I are now in a legal agreement to trade these goods back and forth. Those kinds of things would have been handled by one of the more advanced scribes, as opposed to one of the ones who could write in cuneiform, but couldn't handle the more complex ones. They'd also do the temple administrative documents. So documents that were considered important to the church, probably things like, How much did we have donated from X, Y, and Z? What kind of stores do we have? What kind of scrolls do we have? Or not scrolls, but what kind of tablet information do we have? Things like that would have been documented and kept track of by the temple administrators who would have been using the more advanced cuneiform. The most advanced students, the absolute most advanced students, were allowed to copy hymns and epics. So it was only the most advanced scribes of cuneiform that were allowed to write out these great stories and the different tales from their religious texts that they wanted to keep. So things like prayers to certain gods or the epic story of King such and such, like the King Darius ones that I mentioned earlier. Whoever it was that carved those and left the impressions into the cliffside most likely was one of their very advanced scribes, a very advanced cuneiform writer, because they wouldn't have been allowed to copy that kind of information otherwise. It's possible that something was fudged because it's a giant cliffside. Who knows who did what? But we don't know. As far as we do know, it would have had to have been one of the most advanced cuneiform students. We also know something that I think is really interesting is that all cuneiform marks are identical. If you look at six different tablets, you have no way to know who wrote which tablet. Because it was so memorization-based and because it was all dependent on depth and angle and you had to be so precise, there's absolutely no personality in the cuneiform writing at all. I, most people say, and you know, they even have people who specialize in reading uh, handwriting interpretation nowadays. Well, that's not the case back then. All of the handwriting was exactly the same. All of those marks, how deep they were, the angle they were at, all of that was an indicator of what the word meant. So you couldn't put personality into the writing or it would completely change the meaning of the word which is something that makes sense, but it's so foreign compared to what we're used to with our current handwriting that I just thought it was really interesting. There are some of the cuneiform tablets where the writer put in what are called colophons. They're small marks that were left behind and they are indicators of the authenticity of the document or um, little prayers to honor Nabu, their god of scribes. However these are still not good indicators of who wrote it. There are marks that can indicate things like this person was authorized to write this document so we know it's authentic, that sort of thing. Another thing I thought was really interesting is one of the ways that they would sign these documents. So even though their writing was so intricate and complex and completely impersonal from person to person because it had to be in order to convey the right message, their seals that they used to sign off on documentations were very unique. They were made of stone, and what they would do with these seals is roll them along the cuneiform tablet. So they were made of stone and they were carved so that symbols would be raised up. So then when you pressed them into the clay, it would leave impressions behind. And these symbols, these raised words and images, were very unique to each individual. No two people had the same one. And regardless of what your status was in Sumerian society, you had a seal. Your seal might be much less complex if you were someone who was more poor than versus, you know, someone like the king. His was probably really complex. But nonetheless, everyone had one. And what's interesting about this also is that stone doesn't really occur naturally in the Sumer Valley, where the Sumerian culture originated. So all of these stones that they used for these seals had to be imported from somewhere. There's evidence of some of these stones having come from as far away as Afghanistan and Egypt to make it to the Sumer Valley, which is in sort of what became Persia and Iran and Iraq area. So they traveled and imported these stones from quite far away in order to be able to make these seals. Another thing that's interesting is, unlike nowadays where you and I have signatures which are specifically unique, and yes, they can be forged, but a handwriting expert can sometimes still tell the difference because of how deep we pressed on this letter or the swoop that we put on that letter, you know, all those kind of things that I mentioned earlier that make handwriting so personal, well, the seals that the Sumerians used were completely reproducible. So I could have my own personal seal in Sumer that I used for my documentation, and someone, if they managed to get a hold of a tablet that I had signed, or if they managed to somehow get a hold of my actual seal, they could copy it completely and completely forge my signature on documents. So... That is one thing that's unfortunate. Now, there were a limited number of scribes. As I mentioned, it was taught mainly to the privileged and the really well-educated families. So it's not like everyone in the country could do this. So that would have made it somewhat harder. But, you know, unfortunately, society's not perfect. People are not perfect. I'm sure there's people that were taught at least basic cuneiform and scribe classes, and then turned around and did something with it that was more shady. Because that's just the way life is. So there were most likely some forgeries on seals. Probably not at the highest class system. I would imagine that the king and his royal court, it was probably a little harder to get a hold of that information. But who knows? They could have even forged the king's signature on things, and we wouldn't really have a way to tell because, again... It's so impersonal the way they kept the information. It's incredibly complex and accurate and in its own way, very beautiful, but it doesn't really give a lot of personality. So we don't have a a writing style or anything to compare. And we don't have, you know, like I mentioned nowadays, our handwriting, the way I sign my signature is completely different from how my husband signs his, even though our last name is the same. But my my last name signature doesn't look anything like his. And that's simply because even though we were both taught similarly how to write the English language, our own personality and our own flair has changed those signatures to be what they are. That didn't exist and it doesn't exist in cuneiform tablets. So even though we've got hundreds of thousands of these cuneiform tablets, we can't tell from one to the other who wrote what and we probably never will be able to, which is both fascinating and a little sad because it means we can't really try to find more information out about a particular person. Now, like I said, a lot of these documents, though, they are used mainly for administrative purposes. So even though we can't tell who a particular person might be, we could look through them and see, oh, well, These documents all came from this location because they're all talking about transactions between X and Y and things like that. So there's a lot of information we can learn from these tablets, but unfortunately, we don't have a lot of translators. It's such an ancient language and it's so complex that even though there are some people out there, historians and archaeologists and whatnot, who can read cuneiform, they're few and far between. So even though we have all of these tablets, a lot of the information still hasn't been translated, especially since the information is not only in cuneiform, but it's in cuneiform in a different language. It's not in English or Spanish or Japanese, you know, any languages that we speak nowadays. It's in ancient Sumerian and things like that. So it has to be further translated again, even once they get the cuneiform translated. We also know that cuneiform was used for at least a thousand years, even after Sumerian was no longer spoken, and that in ancient times, Sumerian was considered a classical language. So people who spoke Aramaic and Assyrian were taught the Sumerian language as an ancient language, kind of like how nowadays we might teach our children Latin. Or, you know, in ancient Greece, they might have taught their children, well, in Greece, they might teach their children ancient Greek if they can speak it, things like that. It's a very classical language. It's not something that is taught to everyone, and it's not something that everyone bothers to learn. But by 1600 BC, we know that there were no Sumerian speakers alive, or at least none that were known of. Possibly someone spoke a couple words here and there, but in terms of fluent speakers, there's no historical record of any after 1600 BC. And then over time, eventually the Sumerian writing also became defunct. It was around for about another thousand years. So cuneiform was around till around 600 BC or so. But then at that point, it gave way to Aramaic and Akkadian writing and was replaced by those. And then between that time frame, about 600 BC, all the way up to 1837 when Sir Rawlinson managed to to translate it. As far as we know, there was no one who spoke or read or, well, no one who read cuneiform and no one who could speak Sumerian. So I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Like I said, it was going to originally be the overall history of handwriting, but then I started reading the book I used and there was so much information, and I thought it was so interesting that I decided to just focus on cuneiform for this episode, at least. I'll probably touch on some of the history of handwriting in a later episode. The author of this book, as I mentioned, is Anne Trubeck. The name of the book is The History and Uncertain Future of Handwriting. So some of the information that I didn't throw in in the podcast today is a lot of her analysis and comparisons between modern society's use of handwriting versus texting and computer type to Sumerian's use of the cuneiform, which then gave way to other forms of writing on papyrus and everything. So it's a very interesting read. Um, To be perfectly honest, all the information I just gave you is mostly just from the first chapter. It's so informative, yet very interesting, I think. And it's not an incredibly long book. So if it's a topic that you think is interesting, but you don't, you know, want to have to read a 300-page textbook on the information, it's only 177 pages. And some of those pages are things like an introduction and her resources that she used. So I definitely recommend checking it out. I got it on Kindle. I believe it was only about $2. It wasn't a super expensive book. So it's also really inexpensive and a great way to learn more about it if you are interested. And with that, I'm going to close out this week's episode, and I will talk to you next week. Please remember to check out the other wonderful podcasts and productions here at nerdsmith.org. I'll be back next week with a new and interesting topic. And until then, don't forget to geek thyself. love D&D, obviously, but you want to sharpen your skills as a DM or player, right? Enter Dear DM, a Dungeons & Dragons advice podcast where I sit down with your favorite Dungeon Masters and answer d d questions asked by you. Natural 20 is nudist. <laughs> <laughs> a plucked kanku. Uh, charisma. Dumpsack charisma. Really? <laughs> Great questions in the community today. Some really fun bits to, to talk on and expand on. So Episodes release every other Tuesday and are available at nerdsmith.org